Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast for Book 8, Chapter 22. We're going to be starting Book 9 tonight. Excitement. Um, But first, let's wrap up Book 8, Chapter 22. This chapter and the whole volume ends with Pierre witnessing the Great Comet of 1812 and feeling that it answered fully to what was in his softened and encouraged soul now blossoming into new life. Do you think that Tolstoy intended a parallel between this and Andre's great big sky moment? What about Natasha's speech about the moon back in 2.3.2? Is that related? Do you think it's significant that these characters in particular seem to have some similar moments of clarity when looking at the sky? Were you surprised that Natasha told Pierre not to call Anatole bad? And do you think Natasha is correct when she says, for me... All is lost. What do you think she will do next? The sky, yeah. Uh, Ripster 66 says, The sky is a handy metaphor for the smallness of humanity. Each of these characters is overwhelmed by the beauty and the enormity of the sky and what it holds at a moment when they are also deeply introspective. I don't think that's an accident. Natasha doesn't want to think poorly of Anatole yet. The whirlwind nature of the romance still has a bit of a grip on her, I bet. And all isn't over for Natasha, but she sure feels like it is. She's still very young and feels as though the world has ended. Teenage drama for sure. I hope she matures from this and doesn't turn bitter. Um, this is a really nice song. Uh, who mentioned? Oh yeah, Holy Moon Toss says, If anyone is, is interested, there's a really beautiful song from the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 18... 18- from the uh, uh, it's called The Great Comet of 1812 that coincides with the end of this volume you can find it on uh, YouTube alright that's that that's that let's keep reading let's see what book 9 has in store for us if we can uh, bring it up oh oh not a good idea to yawn on your podcast <coughs> All right, 1812, that's the name of this, of book nine, 1812, chapter one, from the close of the year 1811, an intensified arming and concentrating of the forces of Western Europe began, and in 1812 these forces, millions of men, reckoning those transporting and feeding the army, army? (laughs) moved from the west eastwards to the Russian frontier, toward which Since 1811, Russian forces had been similarly drawn. On the 12th of June 1812, the forces of Western Europe crossed the Russian frontier, and war began. That is, an event took place opposed to human reason and to human nature. Millions of men perpetrated against one another such innumerable crimes, frauds, treacheries, thefts, forgeries, issues of false money, burglaries, incendiarisms, and murders as in whole centuries are not recorded in the annals of all the law courts of the world, but which those who committed them did not at the time regard as being crimes. What produced this extraordinary occurrence? What were its causes? The historians tell us with naive assurance that its causes were the wrongs inflicted on the Duke of Oldenburg, the non-observance of the continental system, 
the ambition of Napoleon, the firmness of Alexander, the mistakes of the diplomatists, diplomatists, and so on. Consequently, it would only have been necessary for Metternich, Rumianstev, or Talleyrand, between a levy and an evening party, to have taken proper pains and written a more adroit note, or for Napoleon to have written to Alexander, my respected brother, I consent to restore the duchy to the Duke of Oldenburg, and there would have been no war. We can understand that the matter seemed like that to contemporaries. It seemed naturally to Napoleon that the war was caused by England's intrigues, as in fact he said on the island of St. Helena. It naturally seemed to members of the English Parliament that the cause of the war was Napoleon's ambition. To the Duke of Oldenburg, the cause of the war was the violence done to him. To businessmen, that the that cause, sorry, to businessmen, that the cause of the war was the continental system which was ruining Europe. To the generals and the old soldiers, that the chief reason for the war was the necessity of giving them employment. To the legitimists of that day, that it was the need of re-establishing Le Bon Principes. And to the diplomatists of that time, that it all resulted from the fact that the alliance between Russia and Austria in 1819 had not been sufficiently well concealed from Napoleon. And from the awkward wording of Memorandum Number 178, it is natural that these, and a countless and infinite quantity of other reasons, the number depending on the endless diversity of points of view, presented themselves to the men of that day, but to us, to posterity, who view the thing that happened in all its magnitude and perceive its plain and terrible meaning, these causes seem insufficient. To us it is incomprehensible that millions of Christian men killed and tortured each other, either because Napoleon was ambitious or Alexander was firm, or because England's policy was astute or the Duke of Oldenburg was wronged. We cannot grasp what connection such circumstances have with the actual fact of slaughter and violence. Why? Because the Duke was wronged, thousands of men from the other side of Europe killed and ruined the people of Smolensk and Moscow, and were killed by them. To us, their descendants, who are not historians and are not carried away by the process of research, and can therefore regard the event with unclouded common sense, an incalculable number of causes present themselves. The deeper we delve in search of these causes, the more of them we find, and each separate cause or whole series of causes appears to us equally valid in itself and equally false by its insignificant insignificance compared to the magnitude of the events and by its impotence, apart from the cooperation of all the other coincident causes. To occasion the event, to us, the wish or objection of this or that French corporal to serve a second term appears as much a cause of Napoleon's refusal to withdraw his troops beyond the Vistula and to restore the Duchy of Oldenburg, for had he not wished to serve and had a second, a third, and a thousandth corporal and private also refused, there would have been so many less men in Napoleon's army and the war could not have occurred. Had Napoleon not taken offence at the demand that he should withdraw beyond the Vistula, and not ordered his troops to advance, there would have been no war. 
but, had all his sergeants objected to serving a second term, then also there could have been no war. Nor could there have been a war had there been no English intrigues and no Duke of Oldenburg, and had Alexander not felt insulted, and had there not been an autocratic government in Russia, or a revolution in France, and a subsequent dictatorship and empire, or all the things that that produced the French Revolution, and so on. Without each of these causes, nothing could have happened. So all these causes, myriads of causes, coincided to bring it about. And so there was no one cause for that occurrence. But it had to occur because it had to. Millions of men, renouncing their human feelings and reason, had to go from west to east to slay their fellows, just as some centuries previously hordes of men had come from the east to the west slaying their fellows. The actions of Napoleon and Alexander, on whose words the events seemed to hang, were a little voluntary as were as little voluntary as the actions of any soldier who were drawn into the campaign by lot or by conscription. This could not be otherwise, for in order that the will of Napoleon and Alexander, on whom the event seemed to depend, should be carried out, the concurrence of innumerable circumstances was needed without any one of which the event could not have taken place. It was necessary that millions of men in whose hands lay the real power, the soldiers who fired or transported provisions and guns, should consent to carry out the will of these weak individuals and should have been induced to do so by an infinite number of diverse and complex causes. We are forced to fall back on fatalism as an explanation of irrational events, that is to say events, the reasonableness of which we do not understand, The more we try to explain such events in history reasonably, the more unreasonable and incomprehensible do they become to us. Each man lives for himself, using his freedom to attain his personal aims, and feels with his whole being that he can now do or abstain from doing this or that action. But as soon as he has done it, that action performed at a certain moment in time becomes irrevocable and belongs to history, in which it has not a free but a predestined significance. There are two sides to the life of every man, his individual life, which is the more free, the more abstract its interests, and his elemental hive life, in which he inevitably obeys laws laid down for him. Man lives consciously for himself, but is an unconscious instrument in the attainment of the historic universal aims of humanity, a deed done irrevocable, and its results coinciding in time with the actions of millions of other men assume an historic significance. The higher a man stands on the social ladder, the more people he is connected with, and the more power he has over others, the more evident is the predestination and the inevitability of his every action. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. A king is history's slave. History, that is, the unconscious general, hive life of mankind, use every moment of the life of kings as a tool for its own purposes. Though Napoleon at that time, in 1812, was more convinced than ever that it depended on him, Verseur, or Nopar Verseur, la sang de ses pups, which means to shed or not to shed the blood of his peoples, 
uh, as Alexander expressed it in the letter, the last letter he wrote. He had never been so much in the grip of inevitable laws which compelled him. While thinking that he was acting on his own volition to perform for the hive life, that is to say, for history, whatever had to be performed, the people of the West moved eastwards to slay their fellow men, and by the law of coincidence, thousands of minute causes fitted in and coordinated to produce that movement and war reproaches for the non-observance of the continental system, the Duke of Oldenburg's wrongs, the movement of troops into Prussia, undertaken as it seemed to Napoleon only for the purpose of securing an armed peace, the French Emperor's love and habit of war coinciding with his people's inclinations, allurement by the grandeur of the preparations and the expenditure on those preparations, and the need of obtaining advantages to compensate for that expenditure, the intoxicating honours he received in Dresden, the diplomatic negotiations which, in the opinion of the contemporaries, were carried on with a sincere desire to attain peace, but which only wounded the self-love of both sides and millions of other causes that adapted themselves to the event that was happening or, or coincided with it. When an apple has ripened and falls, why does it fall? Because of its attraction to the earth, because its stalk withers, because it is dried by the sun, because it grows heavier, because the wind shakes it, or because the boy standing below wants to eat it. Nothing is the cause. All this is only the coincidence of conditions in which all vital organic and elemental events occur. And the botanist who finds the apple falls finds that the apple falls because the cellular tissue decays and so forth is equally right with the child who stands under the tree and says the apple fell because he wanted to eat it and prayed for it. Equally right or wrong is he who says that Napoleon went to Moscow because he wanted to and perished because Alexander desired his destruction and he who says that an undermined hill weighing a million tons fell because the last navy Navi struck it for the last time with his mattock. In historic events, the so-called great men are labels giving names to events, and like labels, they have but the smallest connection with the event itself. Every act of theirs, which appears to them an act of their own will, is in an historical sense involuntary, and is related to the whole course of history and predestined from eternity. Alright, there we go. There's quite a change of pace for you. Not much story in that. It was just like a preamble to some war, I think. I think we're going back to war, people. So uh, strap on your bootstraps and uh, get ready for that. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.